Section 17 of Boy's Book of Famous Soldiers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. Boy's Book of Famous Soldiers by J. Walker McSpadden. Haig, Part 1. Haig, the man who led the contemptibles. There goes young Haig. He says he intends to be a soldier. The speaker was a young student at Oxford University, as he jerked his thumb in the direction of a slight but well-set-up fellow, a classmate, who went cantering past. The chance remark, made more than once during the college days of Field Marshal Haig, struck the keynote of his career. From early boyhood Douglas Haig was going to be a soldier, and he stuck to his guns in a quiet, systematic way until he won out. The story of Haig's life, till the time of the Great War, was the opposite of spectacular, and even in it his personal prowess was kept studiously in the background with him it has always been my men did thus and so yet in his quiet way he has always made his presence felt with telling effect he has been the man behind the man behind the gun by birth haig was a fifer which sounds military without being so he was a native of Cameronbridge, county of fife and came of the strictest presbyterian scotch if he had lived a few centuries back he would have been a covenanter the kind that carried a bible in one hand and a gun in the other he was born june nineteenth eighteen sixty one the youngest son of john haig a local justice of the peace his mother was a veach of midlothian the family while not wealthy was comfortably situated the haig children grew up as countrywise rather than town-bred having many a romp over the rolling country leading to the highlands but more than once on Sister John would come the inquiry, where's Douglas? We doubt whether they ever shortened it to Doug, as they would have done in America. And back would come the answer, oh, he stayed by the house, the morn. He got a new book frae the library, you ken. Douglas was indeed bookish, and was inclined to favor the inglenook rather than the heather. As he grew older he discovered a strong liking for books on theology. It was the old Presbyterian streak cropping out. The last thing one would expect from such a boy was to become a soldier, a divinity student, yes, perhaps a college professor, but a soldier, never. Yet it was to soldiering that this quiet boy turned. The one thing which linked him up with the field was horsemanship. He was always a devotee of riding, and soon learned to ride well, with a natural ease and grace. He received a general education at Clifton, then entered Brasenose College, Oxford, at the age of twenty. He was never a hail-fellow, well-met sort of person. Reserve was his hallmark. But the longer he stayed in college, the more of an outdoorsman he became. Every afternoon would find him mounted on his big gray horse for a gallop across the moors, or perhaps an exciting canter behind the hounds on the scent of a fox. It was then that his habitual reserve would melt away, and he would wave his hat and cheer like a high school boy. The record of his classes is in no sense remarkable. He turned in neat and precise papers without making shiny marks in any particular study. Literature and science were his best subjects. "'Well, son, how goes it now?' his father would ask. "'Ready to make a lawyer out of yourself?' Douglas would shake his head. He could never share his father's enthusiasm for the law. "'I guess not, father,' he would reply quietly. "'Somehow I am not built that way. I want to try at soldier life.' So his father let him follow his bent and procured for him a position in the 7th Regiment of Hussars. 
his career as a soldier was threatened at the outset by the refusal of the medical board to admit him to the staff college on the ground that he was color-blind but this decision was overruled by the duke of cambridge then commander-in-chief who nominated him personally this was in eighteen eighty five england was then as nearly at peace as she ever became and it seemed that young haig was destined to become a feather-bed soldier but it was not for long they presently began to stir up trouble down in egypt and england found as on many previous occasions that she didn't have enough regulars for the job in hand the revolt of the mahdi had occurred khartoum had fallen and the brave gordon had lost his life a relief expedition into the soudan was organized under the command of a tall stern soldier named kitchener who began his first preparations to march into the interior about the time that haig was putting on his first hussar uniform the campaign in egypt dragged despite the zeal of the leader in disgust kitchener returned to england to demand more men the request was at last granted and by december eighteen eighty eight he was in command of a force of over four thousand troops of which number seven hundred fifty were british regulars those were indeed the days of the little contemptibles but right manfully they measured up to their tasks and in the british force was the seventh hussars including haig he was about to achieve his life's ambition at last to see real service as a british soldier haig was then a well-knit young man of twenty-seven his outdoor exercise had browned and hardened him until he looked thoroughly fit for the exacting job ahead he was slightly under medium size but tough and wiry to the last degree his shoulders were broad his head well set and the bulging calves of his legs showed the born cavalrymen he had fair almost sandy hair a close-cropped moustache and steel-blue eyes which met honestly and unflinchingly the gaze of any with whom he talked he looked then as in later years every inch a soldier and speedily won the confidence of his superiors the silent kitchener who was a keen judge of men soon took a fancy to this quiet young lieutenant a friendship sprang up between them that was destined to bear far-reaching fruit the two men were both reserved in demeanour but in a different sort of way kitchener was taciturn and often inclined to growl haig was a man of few words and no intimates but greeted all with a pleasant smile to this young scotsman kitchener unbent more than was his wont and was actually seen shaking hands with him at parting on a later occasion which all goes to show that even commanding officers can be human on the march into the soudan kitchener was in command of the egyptian cavalry also the khedive was exceedingly anxious that the rebellion be crushed speedily and had made kitchener the sirdar one of the first actions in this campaign was the battle of gameza three brigades were sent to storm the forts held by the dervishes and a heavy and sustained fire from three sides soon drove the enemy out in disorder some five hundred dervishes were slain and the remaining numbering several thousand fled across the desert toward handub closely pursued by the british hussars and the egyptian cavalry this was only the first of many such actions further and further south the rebels were driven kitchener pushed a light railroad across the desert as he advanced so that he would not suffer from the same mistake which had ended gordon getting cut off from his base of supplies and in the thick of it was haig learning the actual trade of war in these frequent brushes on the desert riding hard by day sleeping the sleep of exhaustion at night on more than one occasion the chief sent him on a special quest with important messages and always haig got through he seemed to bear a charmed life lucky haig the men began to call him and the title stuck entering the desert as a lieutenant he was promoted to captain then breveted a major 
he was mentioned in the dispatches for bravery and won a medal from the khedive all this was not done in a few short months the egyptian campaign stretched into years and at times must have seemed fearfully monotonous to these soldiers so far removed from home comforts here is the way one writer describes the sudan the scenery it must be owned was monotonous and yet not without haunting beauty mile on mile hour on hour we glided through sheer desert yellow sand to right and left now stretching away endlessly now a valley between small broken hills sometimes the hills sloped away from us then they closed in again now they are diaphanous blue on the horizon now soft purple as we ran under their flanks but always they were steeped through and through with sun hazy immobile silent one of the culminating battles of the campaign was that of atbara where the backbone of the dervish rebellion was broken it is estimated that here eight thousand dervishes were killed two thousand wounded and two thousand made prisoners the battle began with a bombardment by the field guns then came the british cavalry at a gallop the camerons in front the columns of warwick's seaforce and lincoln's behind bugles bagpipes and the instruments of the native regiments made strange music as the army pressed forward intent on reaching the river bank the native stockades were reinforced with thorn bushes but these were torn away by the men with their bare hands in their eagerness to advance Haig's regiment was one of the first to penetrate but once past the stockade they encountered many of the defenders who put up a fierce fight several british officers lost their lives and it was due to Haig's ability and presence of mind that he was not at the least severely wounded two dervishes attacked him at once from opposite sides one aimed a slashing blow at his head with a scimitar Haig quickly ducked and the scimitar went crashing against the weapon of the other dervish Haig's luck again others were not so fortunate never mind me lads go on said major urquhart with his dying breath go on my company and give it to them gasped captain findlay as he lay at the head of the attacking party strode piper stewart playing the march of the cameron men until five bullets laid him low truly the spirit of the fiery old covenanters was there end of Hague, part one